Welcome to Common Ground, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. It wasn't too long ago that people argued about whether they should get the coronavirus vaccine. But the debate nowadays is whether people can get vaccinated at all. Senior producer Dina El-Sayed explains. To say that Germany's COVID-19 vaccine rollout is not going according to plan would be an understatement. Back in December, Health Minister Jan Spahn predicted there would be up to 300,000 inoculations per day. Two months later, the country's health agency, the Robert Koch Institute, reports one-fifth of that target is being met. Some two million people have received their first jab and only a quarter of them receive the second dose. That means Germany and its inoculation rate are in 21st place worldwide. It's a bitter reality for the country where the first widely accepted coronavirus vaccine was developed. Hamburg Mayor Peter Tschentscher complained that many people who are in desperate need for the vaccine can't get an appointment. He is one of many politicians and pundits pointing fingers at who is to blame in Germany for the sluggish rollout. But the problem is also an EU one. A decision by Brussels to negotiate contracts with several pharmaceutical companies at lower prices and leaving them holding any legal liability slowed the process down. The EU is also accused of not investing enough in expanding production capacity. Following a vaccine summit last week hosted by Chancellor Angela Merkel, her health minister also stressed the importance of managing expectations. In a recent interview with public broadcaster ARD, Spahn explained that a single glitch in the production cycle could mean weeks-long delays. He warned of a few more hard weeks ahead, at least until April. Despite the disappointment, criticism and lowered expectations, Merkel says she is sticking to her original timeline. She predicted increasing COVID-19 vaccine deliveries in the upcoming months and that every adult in Germany will be offered an inoculation by the end of summer. That was senior producer Dina El-Sayed. Joining me today via Zoom to talk about why the vaccine rollout has been so disjointed, even in the world's wealthiest countries, are Die Welt's Middle East correspondent and author Christina Kensha, who joins us from Tel Aviv. The Wall Street Journal's chief foreign affairs correspondent and author Yaroslav Trofimov, who joins us from Dubai, and ARD German radio correspondent Helga Schmidt, who joins us from Brussels. Welcome, everyone. Hi. Hello. Helga, let's start with you. Why are Germany and the EU having such a hard time rolling out vaccines, especially when many of those vaccines are produced here? That's the question. Do the Germans really have a hard time in other EU member states? We see here from Brussels, people and politicians are less nervous, trust more in the prognostics that the problems will be solved in a couple of weeks. But nevertheless, the European Union has got an obvious delay in vaccination. And the main reason is that the EU concluded the treaties three weeks later than Great Britain and the US. And there were reasons for this. The EU chief negotiator couldn't decide alone. She always had to consult with Berlin and Paris. And there were national interests, national favorites amongst the pharmaceutical companies. So the negotiations took much more time than in London or in Washington. Then came the delivery problems. BioNTech Pfizer and AstraZeneca are able to deliver much less and later than they had promised. And here, 
the EU is particularly affected by this because most companies say that they supply first the countries that have concluded the contracts first. From a legal point of view, this is probably nonsense, but it doesn't help. The problem is the pharmaceutical companies have promised more vaccine than they can supply at the moment. Christina, you are in Israel, which has the highest inoculation rate of the coronavirus vaccine in the world. What accounts for Israel's success? First of all, I think Israel was really quick and really had a good idea. I mean, Israel is such a small country. Yeah, it's like 9 million inhabitants. It's as big as one region of Germany. I mean, this is a competition for the vaccines. There's clearly not enough for everyone. And Israel is such a small market. So they thought, how can we get the vaccine? And first of all, they paid more. That's what people say. But I don't think that was the reason why they are getting a good supply now. Um, They really quickly had the idea to do kind of a marketing campaign and saying we're a very small country. If you give us vaccines, you don't have to give us a lot. We will be ready really quick. And we have one of the, if not the most digitalized um, health system in the world. So we are able to provide you with quick data, with studies um, of the effectiveness of the vaccine. And I think this was a major point for Pfizer and BioNTech saying, okay, we will give you a good supply and you will share data with us. So I think this was the main deal Israel had here and it's working pretty good for this country. Now, the vaccine story is pretty personal for you. I mean, as a 38-year-old foreigner, you were vaccinated by the Israelis, but your German grandmother, who died from COVID-19 late last month, I'm sorry to say, in a German hospital, couldn't get the vaccine. And in a tweet, you described it as a grotesque failure in distributing it effectively. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. I mean, one thing is the topic of how the EU dealt with Pfizer and other companies, that's a very complex topic, but I think it's clearly easy to say that Germany is not very good, um, to put it lightly, in distributing the vaccines they have. I mean, even within the EU, uh, European Union, uh, Germany is pretty slow right now. And this is like some cause of anger for many Germans right now, because one argument was, okay, the European Union was slower because, uh, as Helga described, we had to find compromises and get everybody on board. But the other thing is now, even within the European Union, Germany is relatively slow. And uh, one of the problems is that nearly all the systems they put up to make appointments to get vaccinated don't work. Almost every land um, had his own system and nearly all the systems failed in the beginning and they're still not working very well. So, for example, uh, a friend of mine tried for days to get an appointment for his mother and he really had to try it every day yeah like five hours and first of all the server broke down the hotline broke down and finally he got through and he only saw appointments or not even appointments until the year 2024 so this was clearly a technical failure but a lot of people report this and then 
it was particularly bad in my home region with this in Nordrhein Westphalia and the head of this land just said yeah well uh, this was to be expected if so many people call then we will have technical problems and if you don't do your appointment today then do it tomorrow or in a week you know so a lot of people are getting really angry now because it's not working and the politicians are coming up with excuses upon excuses that uh, just sound like a lame excuse. But how did that compare to your experience in Israel? I mean, did you have to call in as well? Or did they send you a letter saying report? No, no, not at all. Like really, this experience is really like mind boggling for me. Like I have a health insurance here, but this doesn't even matter. Israel uh, vaccinates everybody that lives here. So even before I was amazed by the efficiency of the Israeli health system. So just to give you a number, Israel started with a digital um, medical record in 1993. Germany decided to start this year and it's not even working right yet. So in Israel it works like you have, uh, you can either log in online or with an app, you can also call um, and then you enter your own a medical record with your passport number and the password. And so what I did, I just went online, I chose a time, I chose the place, and then I got two appointments. That's it. It was like two minutes. <laughs> well, that sounds very efficient. As you mentioned, Israel is somewhat smaller. But Yaroslav, how does Israel's strategy differ from what's happening in the Emirates, which is also a smaller place, but has the second highest immunization rate in the world? Yes, well, the UAE now is catching up with Israel. I think it's uh, 37 shots per 100 residents uh, was the latest data we have here. And it's about the same size, also about 10 million people. And I also got the vaccine here and also took me five minutes on the phone line with the Dubai Health Authority to schedule an appointment uh, for about seven days after I called. The UAE is a bit different because it's a federation. So we have the federal government that has worked very closely with Sinopharm, the Chinese vaccine manufacturer, to actually run the phase three trials, uh, 31,000 people in UAE, and then also in places like Bahrain, Egypt, uh, and Pakistan. And so uh, since there was no circulating virus in China, a lot of the testing for the Chinese vaccine was done here in collaboration with the UAE government, which considered it to be sufficiently efficient for the senior officials to take it, including, you know, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, the ruler of Dubai, the prime minister. And so that vaccine is available to everyone. There is no appointment needed anymore. People can just uh, show up at vaccination centers. And Dubai separately has had deals with Pfizer-BioNTech and uh, as of yesterday with AstraZeneca to supplement this uh, selection of vaccines. So people have a choice, at least in Dubai. Are people saying, I want this vaccine, but not that vaccine? I mean, is there any any discussion about that? A lot of people would rather take Pfizer, but uh, Pfizer-BioNTech uh, is not available to everybody. It's usually available to residents of Dubai as opposed to the other Emirates who are over the age of 60 or have some uh, pre-existing conditions. And a lot of people are just making a calculation that it's more risky to wait another three months until Pfizer becomes available to them and just go for the Sinopharm shot. You know, but most of my friends uh, who have not had COVID have gone for the Sinopharm. Now, is it mandatory or strongly encouraged in the Emirates? Let me ask Yaroslav first, and then I'll ask Christina the same question about Israel. It's not mandatory. However, in a lot of um, professions, especially people who work for the government, 
there is a requirement uh, to be tested now every seven days. And the testing is at their own expense unless they take the vaccine. Now the new rule is that if you work for the government or for the education system and you come into contact with someone who's COVID positive and you have to self-isolate, if you have not had the vaccine, it comes out of your own personal leave. And also another rule is that you know, Abu Dhabi and Dubai have very different uh, ways of dealing with the pandemic and there is a checkpoint between the two. So if you travel from Dubai to Abu Dhabi, you need to be tested every few days for your first two weeks there. If you have a vaccine, that requirement is lifted. So there is a lot of, it's not mandatory, but there is a lot of pressure and encouragement for people to take it. Christina, what about in Israel? Is it also mandatory or strongly encouraged? It's not uh, mandatory um, and it is strongly encouraged, yes, but there were some people that were really skeptical about getting the vaccine first and now it kind of, I mean, they still are, but now it seems like more and more people are convinced to take it. One motive uh, is the so-called green passport that Israel is promising to everybody who get the vaccine. So it works like this after your second shot, like 10 days after you get this certificate um, that you are now uh, supposedly immune and then you will have privileges like you can travel again without having to quarantine after. Um, you will be able to attend cultural events again, go to restaurants. I mean, they didn't reopen yet, but once they will, um, people with this passport will have the advantage to participate. And um, yesterday, one major of a smaller Israeli city said, People who don't want to get vaccined um, won't be able to send their children to school and stuff like this. But then immediately there was an outrage and people saying what you're doing is illegal and it's not OK. I mean, that's certainly a debate that's ensuing, I think, in many places. I'm sorry, uh, Yaroslav, did you want to say something else? Yeah, I, th I think it's still early for this in lots of places because of the level of vaccinations. Not a lot of people have had the two doses. But we already see in countries like Georgia or like the Seychelles saying that we will you know, allowing only the tourists to have had the vaccine. So I think it's, it's something to watch uh, in the next few months. Because, you know, like, look at yellow fever. Lots of countries, you know, in, in the tropical belt, do not allow you in without a yellow fever vaccine. So I think it would be quite expected for countries to start requiring this vaccine as a condition for admittance in, by the end of this year, probably. Well, certainly that's been a discussion to some extent in the EU or Germany, although so far they've said no to that sort of passport, if you will, or that sort of requirement. But Helga, I'm just wondering, are the EU or Germany taking any lessons from countries that have had this successful vaccine rollout, like Israel or the Emirates? Or is it business as usual after the recent German Impfgipfel or vaccine summit? Well, there is a broad discussion just taking place now, just beginning on uh, what has gone wrong in Brussels. First point, the Commission and in particular President von der Leyen promised too much. Everybody is, uh, is thinking that Ursula von der Leyen likes to use big words, visionary goals, this vocabulary like Europe's moon landing, or um, Europe must speak the language of power and this raises expectations and then they are disappointed. For example, in the middle of January, it was clear that there would be less vaccine available than hoped. And that's not the EU's fault, I think, but the Commission should have communicated that more clearly. And that is criticized now that they didn't do that. Second mistake discussed here now, 
there was not enough control. Did the pharmaceutical companies really produce the vaccines in advance in November and December? They already got the money from the EU, but obviously in the case of some companies, there was no control. So that was certainly a big mistake uh, of the commission. And um, well, does the EU take lessons from that? I think maybe there will be new financial support for concrete construction of production capacities. Uh, so maybe they learned from that. And the third mistake discussed here is probably the worst and certainly the most embarrassing. Um, last week, uh, the EU imposed controls on the export of vaccines overlooking the special status of the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And this is exactly what the EU spent years negotiating with the UK in the Brexit deal to avoid such controls. And I think it's unforgivable. Everybody, every correspondent, colleagues thinks it's unforgivable that this happened. Did they take lessons? Uh, yes, the Commission did, even in two hours' time, but the mistake, I think, cannot be explained, nor can it be excused. And when it comes to Germany taking lessons, there are some politicians blaming the EU, saying Germany needs to act more on its own in the vaccine dispute. To my mind, it is not a good idea, because so far it has been a great success that the 27 member countries, poor and rich alike, have stayed together, fought together for the vaccine. Uh, imagine if 27 countries would have negotiated with the pharmaceutical companies being pitted against each other. That wouldn't help because no member state is safe if the virus isn't combated, at least in the continent. And concerning Germany, there's one practical lesson to learn and Christine described it uh, in the case of North Rhine-Westphalia. I come from that uh, county as well. And uh, I can only say Christine is right. It's a mess, a complete mess, um, because for many elder people, the over 80s, it was impossible to fix a date for the vaccination. Telephone lines crashed, mailboxes in the regional administrations were overcrowded, they said. So that was really incredible. That was uh, not a professional way to organize it. And I'm not sure if that will be openly discussed now because member states of the EU always have the option to put the blame on Brussels, but the health sector is completely national competence. Only during the um, coronavirus pandemic, they started to do some cooperation in fighting the virus in fighting for vaccines. But normally health stuff is a national competence. So. I hope that there will be an open discussion in Germany what went wrong in Germany in that pandemic. Okay, Yaroslav, go ahead. You wanted to add something? Yeah, I think it raises very interesting philosophical questions because the EU you know, has been saying that because we are big, we are powerful, we could negotiate a better deal and they spent all this time uh, you know, discussing you know, the price of the vaccine and you know, it's going to be $10 or $8 and the liabilities but at the same time, also the smaller countries were much more nimble uh, and faster in rolling it out. Not just Israel, UAE. Look at Serbia. You know, it's a poor country on the borders of the EU and has you know twice as many vaccines delivered per person. Actually, it shows that being big could be a disadvantage because 
politicians in smaller countries. They do respond to electoral pressures uh, and they understand them much better than the bureaucrats in Brussels who are insulated by layers of responsibility. And governments have realized that it should not haggle over the cost of the vaccines because they are just a rounding error compared to the cost of the lockdowns that are going to last for month and month because there are not enough vaccines. Well, for sure, the economic impact is a very real situation for the EU and everywhere else, perhaps more so for the EU. Bloomberg, in a recent report, estimated the bungled rollout will cost the European Union 100 billion euros. Christina, what role do you think the economy played in Israel's decision to inoculate quickly and broadly? I mean, the economy played a significant role in every discussion, I think. That's not something special um, to Israel. A main factor here is that Israel is a smaller country, but it's also really flexible. I mean, it has to be. It's in a very unstable region. It's really quick in mobilizing its population. I think in this crisis, in this pandemic, we see also cultural differences playing out. And not only I'm saying this, also my colleagues here, In the long run, they weren't really good in organizing this pandemic. I mean, we're in the midst of the third lockdown now. Israel failed a lot in uh, actually pursuing lockdown restrictions early enough and on time. Uh, So in the long run, like preparing things, they weren't really good. But when it came to spontaneously organizing stuff, they are like unbeatable, I think. And what we're seeing now is like, I mean, some German politicians say it already, like they say, yeah, we can't be as quick as Israel because we have to give advice first. So we can't do a drive in a rollout of the vaccine and stuff. And they're saying like negative things about Israel now, even the German chancellor is saying, ah, yeah, Israel is so quick because of digitalization. But then how do you protect the data? We're having problems here. We have to discuss this within the next years. So Germany is just being slow and bureaucratic and super far behind in digitalization. And I think this is a discussion and a debate we will have for the next years. And let me add something to what Jaroslav said. I think politicians all over Europe are not doing a favor to the European Union right now. Because if you're saying our advantage is that we are a big market, that we are a big player, that we can negotiate a better contract, then please negotiate a better contract. Now politicians are saying, yeah, but with the EU, we need more time. So people say, oh, so why should we stick within the EU? Why can't we go ahead as a national country? And I think this is really bad for Europe's uh, reputation right now. And I think the European Commission didn't do itself a favor here. Well, Helga, let me ask you, is the economic impact, I mean, the 100 billion euro costs that we talked about to the economy, do you think that's going to make Brussels act faster or perhaps give more latitude to the EU bloc members to be able to roll out the program in a way that's quicker and makes more sense for them? Difficult to answer that question. I think we can't answer it seriously by now because there are some question marks. Um, I really think that the EU Commission has committed some mistakes, but I wouldn't like to liberate the companies from the responsibility because the treaties have been published last week. And we know that not only the prices, but also the quantity of uh, vaccine doses have been exactly defined in those treaties. 
And uh, there have been, I think, 300 million euros paid only to AstraZeneca, only to produce vaccine doses uh, in the months of November and December, so that those quantities could have been delivered last week, so when uh, the permission for the European market was given. And uh, the CEO of AstraZeneca only informed the European Union uh, one week before that he wouldn't be able to deliver, he would only be able to deliver less than 50% of what he had signed in the treaty. So it is true that the European Commission did not, um, they did not uh, decide uh, for the um, emergency uh, clauses. I said it's a normal process of um, studying those vaccines, so that took longer as well. And they did not take the responsibility for potential problems uh, with the vaccines. They left it to the companies and to my mind, even if that is a minority position, I think that is right. What would that be as a message to the companies to say, uh, well, uh, please develop that vaccines, develop those products, but we, the state, we, Donald Trump, we, Boris Johnson takes the responsibility for potential problems. Uh, that would not be a good message. And in this case, I completely agree with the European Commission's and the 27 member states' decision not to take a emergency decision. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk more about COVID-19 vaccination strategies and when or whether the immunizations will help end the pandemic. Stay tuned. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, the host of Common Ground. And I'm Dina El Sayed, the senior producer. Each week, we bring you a new lively discussion on a hard hitting topic. If you want to learn more about our podcast, check out our website at commongroundberlin.com. The episodes are free to download, but they aren't free to create. Common Ground depends on grants as well as donations from listeners like you. So if you want to help us out, please click on the donate button at commongroundberlin.com. And thanks for listening. Now's a great time to tap into some of KCRW's best work. Hear in-depth interviews with the creative minds that drive Hollywood on the business and the treatment. Break away from the dominant media landscape with Our Body Politic, a news and politics show by and for women of color. And don't miss Press Play with award-winning host Madeline Brand. There's more to love, so keep it tuned to KCRW. Welcome back to Common Ground. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and joining me via Zoom to talk about the disjointed vaccine rollout are developed Middle East correspondent Kostina Kensha, Wall Street Journal chief foreign affairs correspondent Yaroslav Trofimov, and ARD German radio correspondent Helga Schmidt. As we mentioned, two of the four of us in this conversation have had the COVID-19 shots, while the rest of us won't get them until later this summer, if the current planned rollout schedule holds. Christina, does having been inoculated make it easier for you to travel? You mentioned the green passport, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how this will work now that you've been vaccinated. 
I just got my first shot, so I have to wait uh, some more weeks until I have my second one. And then I have to wait 10 more days after the second shot to get the green passport. I have to say much of it is uh, theoretical right now because um, Israel um, closed its airport because of fears about mutations. So right now um, there's almost zero air traffic here. So this is not really relevant for me right now, but it will be in the future. And so this green passport, the, the main thing it does uh, will be that I can travel abroad, then come back and not go into quarantine, which I had to do already twice this year. The first time I had to stay uh, two weeks in a so-called quarantine hotel. And the second time I quarantined at home for two weeks. And I guess the next time I'm gonna go to Germany, I won't need to do this when I come back to Israel. Yaroslav, what about you? I mean, you live in the Emirates and Dubai has a very big airport hub for the world. Um, how is this vaccination going to affect your travel and will it be required of other people coming through Dubai? Well, no. So far, there is really no change as far as Dubai is concerned. Dubai you know, remains open. Uh, anybody can come in as long as they have a negative PCR COVID test and uh, people can leave. You know, we have restaurants and cinemas are open and even the opera is having performances. But it's very early, early days, because there are only a few countries like the UAE or Israel, maybe the UK soon, where a significant portion of the population has received the vaccines. I think once it becomes much more widespread and there is no question of discrimination and anybody who wants can get it, then I think it will become a much more common practice for international travel. But having said that, there are now a few countries like Georgia and Seychelles in our neighborhood that allow visitors only if they have been vaccinated. Really? You said Georgia, as in former Soviet Union Georgia is one of them? Yes, yes. The Republic of Georgia and Caucasus and the Seychelles, they both uh, waived the quarantine requirements for tourists who have been vaccinated. You can still come to the country, though, if you don't have it as long as you quarantine. I think in the Seychelles, you can only come by private jet if you have it in quarantine, but the you know, rules change every day. But they have made special exceptions uh, for people who have been vaccinated. Helga, where does the EU stand on making vaccines a requirement or recommended for international travel? Or do you think tests, or I should say a negative test, is going to be the preferred method of keeping the virus in check in the block? Well, now it's more actually negative tests that are preferred. And there are more tests, more restrictions for people coming from third countries, so traveling from third countries into the EU. There was some countries like Greece and Spain and Malta proposed to do that green card for um, people with the vaccination, green card for traveling. But um, the majority of the European Union thought that wasn't a good idea because uh, the message to the other people would be bad, saying that uh, traveling uh, is a good idea in that moment of the crisis. But um, now in the EU, uh, the most effective and the most well supported by every every country solution is the lockdown. I mean, we have got lockdowns in nearly every country. Restaurants are closed, cafes are closed in some countries like Germany. Uh, all the shops, all the department stores, everything is closed to keep the virus uh, in check. Well, another problem for the EU is obviously the large number of coronavirus deniers or anti-vaxxers 
who make it difficult for countries to sort of roll out a plan because, after all, we have democracies in the EU. Now, Yaroslav, I'm wondering in the Emirates and most other Middle Eastern countries where there are limits imposed on freedom of speech, where do coronavirus deniers and anti-vaxxers fit on the spectrum there? I mean, are their pronouncements tolerated or do they even exist in the Emirates and other places? Well, I think, you know, people in the Emirates or other places in the Gulf have access to the Internet so they can see all the anti-vaxxer propaganda on Twitter, on social media. That isn't blocked? No, Twitter is not blocked. You know, Facebook is not blocked. So uh, people can see all that. Having said that, and just judging by, you know, the people I know here, a lot were reluctant initially to take the vaccine, especially the Chinese one. But then one by one, you know, one group of people did it and nothing happened to them, then another. And the more people get vaccinated, uh, the less anti-vax sentiment there is because people just see the social circle getting it and, you know, nothing bad is happening to them, whereas other people who haven't taken the vaccine are getting sick. So I think uh, it's kind of like a snowball effect. I mean, the more vaccination there is, I think, there is the less skepticism. I think the real issue we have in Europe is not the anti-vax sentiment right now. It's just there is no vaccines because they are not available. Christina, what about Israel? Is there an issue with anti-vaxxers there? Yeah, there is. Um, actually, there were a lot of Facebook groups. And so the Justice Department of Israel even approached Facebook asking to take these groups down and it was a big topic here and i think between 10 and 15 percent of the population said they don't want to get the vaccine but i think if you would ask the people now again their number would be lower because we see really a high response within the population a lot of people want to be vaccinated and somehow like yaroslav said for the emirates the public opinion changed a lot. Um, people want, really want to get vaccinated now, especially now that Israel is also publishing first studies. Um, here they use Pfizer and it has like very, 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 very little side effects. So a lot of people want to be vaccinated right now. Let's talk a bit about herd immunity, because obviously the goal of the vaccines is to do away with the pandemic. And one of those ways, obviously, is by creating what's known as herd immunity. I'm just wondering, Christina, is Israel getting there? Yeah, this is actually the biggest discussion right now. Um, so what Israel is saying that they are being the first test case for the whole world, um, how many people you have to get vaccined in order to um, achieve herd immunity. And until now, people were pretty optimistic. Um, but with this new mutation now, um, which is uh, more aggressive, there are first voices who are saying that Israel can't achieve um, herd immunity until it vaccinates also the children. So there's um, the epidemiological chief of the Sheba hospitals. She's saying now, because Israel has a very young population uh, and about 30% are younger than 16, that vaccinating 70% wouldn't be enough. They have to get the vaccination to children too, but this will take a longer time because you have to run more trials, more tests. So this is a discussion right now with some people saying, yeah, it's achievable, and others saying, um, no, 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 until we don't start vaccinating people under 16, it won't be achievable. 
Now, Helga, what about the EU? I mean, the World Health Organization's top scientists recently said not to count on herd immunity for 2021. Are leaders still talking about this in Europe or are they telling people not to expect that uh, herd immunity or any kind of immunity will come to get rid of the pandemic this year? Well, the Commission President von der Leyen uh, says that uh, in late summer or early autumn, 70% of European citizens should be vaccinated. So that would come to that idea of um, herd immunity. But she tends to develop big visions and to promise a lot. And after the last weeks, uh, we should be prepared that this provision will not be fulfilled. I mean, I do not know how those prognostics really can be proved. That's really difficult. It depends on so many things, so many things that can go wrong uh, still now. So it's more a vision and a hope than a scientific prognostic, I think. One thing we haven't talked about and which I think might be a good way uh, for all of you to address before we close is the role that poverty or wealth plays in the vaccine rollout. So maybe we start with Yaroslav. I mean, is poverty affecting who gets the vaccine in your estimation? Well, I mean, the UAE doesn't. The UAE is free for everyone. So uh, obviously the UAE has the state capacity to deliver it. But I think it's, uh, if you look at it globally, it's more about the capacity of governments to do things. Uh, and some of the poorer countries may be more efficient than some countries in Europe. I mean, we've already seen in Europe that Serbia is doing much better than Germany, for example. And uh, India is planning to vaccinate 10 million people a day, which is you know, what the EU does in a month. So I think it's it's not just a direct function of how much money a country has. It's also a function of how well its uh, state structures function. Christina, what about Israel? I mean, it's had such a success story. Obviously, it's being pinged for the Palestinians only now receiving the vaccines. I mean, is poverty playing a role or is it more about politics? Well, that's a question for different levels. I mean, uh, of course, I think poverty is playing a role when it comes to um, if a state is able to buy enough vaccines or not. But then again, what I uh, said in the beginning, Israel is such a small country, such a small market. Um, and so they were just smart to have the idea to offer themselves as a test field for um, Pfizer. Of course, they paid more, but like in, comp uh, in comparison to the US or to the European Union, that's not even worth mentioning. Um, and then when it comes to the rollout itself, um, poverty doesn't play a role. Israel has four HMOs and it's free for everyone. So um, every Israeli citizen can get it. And when it comes to the Palestinians, just let me ask you this. Do you ask Belgium uh, to help out the Netherlands with vaccines. Um, this discussion for me, it's sometimes a bit populistic, like the Palestinian territories are responsible for their health system. They have their own health system and Israel, according to Oslo, is not responsible for them. Um, that said, of course, there is a discussion if Israel should help the Palestinians out. Uh, one is a moral discussion. The other one is also saying we are one unit when it comes to this pandemic. And, um, and it's clearly in our interest to uh, vaccinate the Palestinians too. And just yesterday, they decided to give a first uh, shipment of 5,000 doses 
to Palestinian healthcare workers, and I think this cooperation will go on. And the Palestinians didn't even ask for it. That's also a fact. They didn't ask for it. Israel is giving it to them now, and now they're announcing, hey, we got 5,000 vaccines, and the Palestinian Authority is not even mentioning where it comes from. So this is, of course, a highly political topic. But I think uh, we're seeing some movement there, and it's, I think we will see some in the future, too. Well, let me just ask a quick follow-up question to that. If we talk just about within Israel, because I take your point that Palestinian territory is a different area, Palestinian state is a different area. Um, what about within the state of Israel? Was there any preference given to, let's say, uh, Jewish citizens versus Arab citizens versus foreigners? Everybody could sign up at the same time. You're the member of one of the four health insurances, and it was given according to age. I mean, um, first of all, everybody above 60 was vaccinated, and of course the medical personnel. And then there was a discussion because which groups should come first, the teachers, the police, and, uh, stuff like this. There was a discussion around this, but there wasn't a discussion of should we vaccinate Jewish or Arabs now, not at all. Like it was according to age and function within this society. But then again, it didn't play such a big role because Israel is so quick. I mean, they just decided today to start vaccinating everybody. Everybody starting tomorrow can get an appointment. So, Helga, let me end with you then and ask you about Europe and how much a role poverty is playing and who gets vaccinated and who doesn't. I think within the EU, uh, poverty doesn't play any role because every citizen of the European Union gets that for free, gets a vaccine for free. And um, there is even uh, amongst the member states some support. For example, today, uh, the German army Bundeswehr uh, started to support Portugal, where at the very moment, obviously, mutatus viruses um, do harm to the population. So to my mind, um, what I see now is really um, kind of solidarity, which one must not underestimate, I think. Then there are differences concerning the infection quotes, because outside Portugal, in the European member states, the quotes are lower, so much lower than in many, many other countries like the US and the UK, where it still is a catastrophe, I think. So we do not have only to compare the, the vaccination uh, rates, but also the infection rates. So I see, because you, you asked uh, concerning poverty and poverty outside the European Union, I do not remember any speech of von der Leyen or any other commissioner who wouldn't have mentioned that there is a duty of solidarity towards other countries in the world. And I know that um, a big part of the investments uh, financed by the European common um, financial system goes to um, NGOs and directly to third world countries in helping them paying the vaccines. That's our show for today. My guests are Divelt's Middle East correspondent and author, Christina Kensha, who joined us from Tel Aviv. The Wall Street Journal's chief foreign affairs correspondent and author, Yaroslav Trofimov, who joined us from Dubai. And ARD German radio correspondent, Helga Schmidt in Brussels. Thank you, everyone, for being on Common Ground.
Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Bye. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next Monday for another episode of Common Ground. You can download all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com. 